I felt like that is the most pro-union movie I've ever seen. Hey, it's Chris Garlock. We're back. Elise and I got a little bit busy with other projects this past summer, but we did get a chance to chat with Kathleen M. Newman back at the end of July. A regular with us here on Labor Goes to the Movies, Kathy's a professor of English, literary, and cultural studies at Carnegie Mellon University, where she teaches and writes about labor, class, film, and media. We'd run across one of those lists of 10 best labor films that pops up from time to time and decided it was a good chance to talk about which films make the lists, which don't, and why. Today's episode is the first part of that conversation. Next week, we'll have the second part when Tom Zaniello, who's written a number of books on labor films, joins us to provide his perspective. So are you ready to roll, Elise? You want to start us off? We, you can tell we really planned this, Kathleen. <laughs> well, I, have we not asked Kathleen this question before? Probably we've asked this question. You can ask it again. Maybe she's got a oh, different answer okay. this time. Right. Hey there, Kathleen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Uh, we, uh, we like to at labor at the movies, go back to the past and, and look back and say, what was that movie that you saw when you were a kid that you just went, oh, oh my God, it's the movies and, and drew you into, uh, movie land world? Oh, wow. That is such an interesting question. Um, I watched a lot of Shirley Temple reruns Ah. on television. Uh 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 And I was totally smitten. I thought she was amazing. And then there was a pizza place that we used to go to. It was called Old Mill Pizza. And they showed, they they projected with like an old movie camera, Laurel and Hardy comedies and other little rascals, uh, a lot of silent stuff from the from the 20s mm-hmm. on the wall of the pizza place. And I mean, I liked old movies as a kid. I was like, I was an old soul uh, from, from a very young age. So I, I think that I really responded to kind of the early catalog of, uh, of American cinema as a, as a young child. So what was the one that when you went to the actual theater and saw on the big screen that grabbed you and went, Oh, Oh my God, Shirley Temple, Lola Hardy. It's all, it's all coming together now. On the big screen. I mean, this is going to be so embarrassing, but I loved the Herbie the Love Bug. Movie. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Herbie the Love Bug. Wow. That's cool. I, I mean, those were not good movies, but I have really good memories of seeing them. And my parents had this great tradition where we would go to the grocery store and we would load up on candy so that we didn't have to pay movie theater prices for candy. Uh-huh. And so like the thrift and like the chase of the affordable candy was very exciting for me. Um, but Kurt Russell Great. starred in those in those love bug movies. Uh-huh. Yes, he did. Yes, they he were did. they were Disney products and, and it was total schlock. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think my answers are very disappointing. I think uh, oh, not at all. I, I, are you kidding? No. We're not, we're not, we're, really? we are not in a position to, I, I'm going to give you a little covering fire here, Kathleen. 
<laughs> Doctor Doolittle, the original with uh, Rex Harrison, which also even even whenever it was that I saw it, I knew it was schlock, but. It was big. It was colorful. It was Rex Harrison. So you know, I I I, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Oh yeah, and mine is uh, Prince Valiant. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Amazing, right. amazing. We're, we're we're really opening up here now. <laughs> <laughs> Unknown Robert Wagner. I didn't know that was Robert Wagner until way years later. But I just remember going, "Look at the big horses, Daddy." <laughs> You're in, you're in good company, sister. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was born in 66 and Star Wars came out in 78. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm definitely like, you know, the original Star Wars generation. Like gotcha. that was. Yeah. Um, and my grandmother took me to see Gone with the Wind when I was also around that age. So that movie had a big impact on me as well. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So on, on, on to uh, we, we, we have come we have come so far and yet not, I don't know. So so we we I, you know somebody sent me one of these you know lists of labor films uh, that that pop up every so often and this one is from something called Polygon. I don't even know how we found it, but fourteen labor union movies to organize your summer and you know obviously an attempt to capitalize on all the interest in unions and oh, you know, yeah. that. All good, all good. Um, and so I thought this was a sort of a good jumping off spot for us, not not to go by, you know, uh, go through it. There's 14 films and we're not going to go through every one of them. But I thought maybe just sort of talk about which one of these is our favorite or which one. I mean, I will I will just sort of throw down the gauntlet. Uh, I have not seen A Bug's Life. I'm not a big animation fan. Um, so I I cannot speak to whether a bug's life is actually a labor film or not uh i don't know if has, has anybody here seen this film um i mean i saw it when it came out with my kids uh, one thing that i have noticed i have seen every kid's movie that came out <laughs> since 2004 when my son was born and now they don't watch them anymore but i still watch them and kids movies do have they often have corporate villains mm -hmm. and they're often quite critical of capitalism and they do often have some kind of, maybe it's not labor, but there's often like a collective moment for the main characters. Um, so I think Bugs Life fits into, into that trend. Um, yeah, and I thought, I thought that Chicken Run was a better example of that uh than bug's life but i you know yeah that's a great point elise that ha that i mean that movie has that incredible animation from that british team and it's just, it's just is quite crazy. radical right it's mm -hmm. sort of like mm -hmm. barn animals coming to consciousness and uh plotting this very dramatic escape mm -hmm. we've actually shown it in the uh in the labor film festival as a you know saturday afternoon for the for the labor kids and, and that 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 was very obvious to us it was a labor film you know for the reasons that you said kathleen but the person writing the bugs life up said it's a very funny write-up he says i'm not saying this animated children's movie is an allegory for class warfare perpetrated by the wealthy and unscrupulous and a demonstration of the necessity of solidarity 
and collection act, collective action as a bulwark against tyranny, but I'm also not not saying that. So it kind of made me want to see it. Well, I also thought it was like the shortest review. <laughs> it occurred to me after Kathleen just explained that perhaps this person did not watch all these children's movies with their kids and doesn't know the gamut of film uh, and, and the sort of context that is that's reoccurring about the people, the masses coming together to, you know, fight back against the boss. That, right. Who knows? We don't know. <laughs> but it, it's but interesting. Tell me what you think. I, I mean, one of the things that, that I wonder, though, to your point, Kathleen, is, you know, is this whole, and I'm thinking back to the way that Disney's animators used to sneak all kinds of stuff into into their into their films. I mean, is there some sort of subversive thing going on here or is, or is it just, you know, commercial movies at work? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Disney animation because um, NPR actually just did a profile of a book about the Disney strike in 1941 and they played a clip from Dumbo that's quite, uh, you know, where the issues of the strike come quite clearly into the film. And it's the clowns are singing, we're going to ask the big boss for a raise. Um, so it's, it's that song from the Dumbo movie. So I do think there's a tradition within animation of uh, animators looking back to that Disney, that Disney strike and that moment. I also think animation is one of the more um it's one of the more labor intensive forms of filmmaking mm. so i think that sense that you are um that you are working for the man and that you're doing this kind of rote work over and over again that that's something that becomes more powerfully apparent in animation in the work process of animation um, so I, I think that there is a, a kind of tradition within animation uh, that, that is significant. And, it, and is, is it that, that the powers that be, uh, the producers, uh, the studios, don't view them in the same way? I mean, or that they don't view them? I mean, it's wonderful about how they get that pass. Or there's an assumption because the, the audience is children? that it won't make as much of a difference as it would if the audience were adults? Yeah, that's such a great point. I I know that in the modern era, the, 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 the powers that be that rail against these movies the most are on Fox News. Like, uh, uh, I don't think uh, uh. that the, the, the big bosses that make the movies care that much that that capitalists are being skewered if they think the movie's going to make money right you, yeah. you talked about that in your essay could you I, I, I didn't i don't know how because i don't watch fox news uh so i don't i'm i'm assuming that either you you, you must have some special source for this but I, i'd love for you to talk a little bit more about fox news um apparently paying attention to these to these films yeah, I mean, there's a long tradition of conservatives claiming that Hollywood makes business look bad. Mm -hmm. And actually, Ayn Rand wrote an amazing essay in the 40s complaining about Hollywood's anti-corporate 
uh, films. And this was, you know, right on the eve of McCarthyism and a claim that this left-wing propaganda was getting snuck into films. But in the, in the modern era, when the Lego movie came out um, and when the, the most recent Muppet movie came out, it was uh, commentators on Fox News who called those movies out for being left-wing propaganda. But, but I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, you, you go, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, oh, I mean, go, you can go back to Shakespeare. There's always been mustache twirling, you know, bad guys. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it, they were probably doing it back in the Greek plays for God's sake. I don't know. You got to have a villain. And when we look around at the people doing that stuff in our society, <laughs> I think capitalists are an easy mark. I agree. Yeah. So looking at the other films, um, what, what stood out to you that were on the list that we were looking at? I wanted to get you to talk about Sorry to Bother You just because you did a great piece on, on that one where you where you start out by telling people, stop whatever you're doing and go watch this film. <laughs> Which is... Yeah. I, um, have you seen Sorry to Bother You, Elise? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. I was there day one. I felt like that is the most pro-union movie I've ever seen. Wow. Interesting. And, I mean, what did you think of it? Um... I, I felt like it was a little going around. I, I had actually expected it to be more direct. Okay. Um, but I thought it was funny as, as heck. <laughs> it's a podcast, Lisa. You can say what you want. And it's funny <laughs> as hell. <laughs> Instead of how, how the story um, uh, was unfolded. Yeah, maybe I was a little bit you know, partly I was persuaded by my own research because the film actually had its origins in the, it was a response to the global financial collapse. Mm -hmm. And the screenplay was written in the early uh, 2010s, like something like 2012. And it took, you know, seven, eight years uh, to make it to the big screen. Um, but there is a, a strike scene in the film and it's so critical of the, the, both the, you know, kind of the big boss and mm -hmm. sort of the oppression within the workplace, but it's also critical of workers going along. You know, it's very critical of the Danny Glover character. Yes. Um, so it's, it, I, I just felt like it, um, you know, I was just shocked to see something with such a strong and contemporary critique. Um, yeah, I just, I was, I, I loved it. I thought it was funny and I just couldn't believe how political it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and it made me think about, you know, Microsoft workers uh, and the whole new, you know, uh, tech industry. And I felt like that, that was a, that was a point at that that group and i really appreciated it the the way you you sort of give your life over right to this corporation mm -hmm. and you love it you know the the that that kind of sacrifice mm -hmm. is really exposed um as so bankrupt yeah and that the and that the central characters were african-american of african-american descent also added another 
twist to it in terms of him uh, assimilating. Well, I, I think that's right. And I think also uh, Boots Riley is trying to change our uh, our vision of what does a worker look like, right? right? Because so much of 20th century, 20th century American film imagines the worker as a white man, mm -hmm. you know, in a hard hat, in a industrial setting. Right. And so here we have um, uh, women, men, uh, African-American characters who are in the, in the sort of tech industry but who have a lot of the same problems of those other uh, kind of 20th century workers. Agree. It was um, Outland. I've never even heard of this movie. <laughs> but now I definitely want to see it. We, yeah, we actually showed it in the Labor Film Festival because, because we like to really sort of jump genres. And so anytime we can find a, you know, a, 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 a like a, a romantic comedy that's also a labor film, which we have found, um, it was Irish, as I recall, or every once in a while we find a sci-fi, uh, a sci-fi one. Uh, Moon, Moon was another one uh, that's also a labor film. Uh, but Outland is a, it's a very odd little film. Um, but it's got a, it's got a good cast, um, and it's really one of these sort of you know western slash sci fi films, uh, but not something I think most people have heard of. Um, and so, you know, I'm with Kathleen, and I'm a Sean Connery. I have been a Sean Connery since 007, and <laughs> so that I missed that. I was like, how did I miss? And and I'm sci fi. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Trekkie, uh, so. And you, you watch it, right, Chris? You saw it? I, I think mean, I saw it when it came out, which was uh, quite a while ago. But I, I think that, I think it was in Connery's kind of cheesy phase there where he oh, would, yeah. oh, you yeah. know. Um, so I yeah. think that's why it didn't, it didn't really get a lot of people's attention, uh, would be my guess. I, I haven't done the research on it. Um, but it, it's, it's definitely, uh, and Peter Boyle, of course, is fabulous. Right. Um, I also want to see this introversion technique that they talk about, like introversion, really? It's, it's, well, first of all, it's intro, it's intro vision, and I don't remember oh, it. I think it's, I think it's, a, <laughs> it's some sort of filming technique, because they talked about it was also used on Stand By Me, and I don't, so. Right. I, uh, Kathleen, do you know anything about that technique? Because that was that was uh, I think I think it's something we wouldn't necessarily notice as viewers, right? I don't. Um, though I'm, I think I'm, I'm just guessing that this is a time when everyone's sort of trying to chase the Star Wars phenomenon yeah. and yeah. the Star Wars success, mm -hmm. and so everyone's sort of trying to find something new in the filmmaking that's going to bring people back to the theaters. Right. And that yeah. one, that, that one, that one didn't really, uh, didn't really make the cut. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, a uh, it's kind of a, it's, it's a cool film and, and that definitely something Yeah, actually one of the cool things I like about this list and, and you kind of have to do it these days is they, they, they put where films are available because trying to, tra as, as you probably know, Kathleen, trying to track down film, there's so many platforms now and um 
it's it's kind of disturbing in a way because we had this sort of this this golden moment where sort of everything was available everywhere and now they're starting to wall stuff off you know i mean I, I, uh, you have to subscribe to Disney Plus. I mean, there's there's things here that you know, Voodoo, Apple. I'm just sort of scrolling through the list here. Yeah, Amazon, Am, yeah, yeah, Prime Video. Um, you know, and um, like like I have Criterion, which I love, but I mean that's like a hundred dollars a year. Mm. Uh, you know, um, and it, so it's a it, you know you have to be really into classic films if you're going to sign up for for Criterion. Um, oh, so like the the. Um... Sergi Eisenstein film, right? Criterion is actually, I mean, I have to say that they, they, it's a well-curated collection. They also do really cool things like put together, you know, sort of fascinating. They put together a, a Western series by a director that I'd never heard of, but turned out to be really influential. And he made like eight films and they put them and they, and they tracked them all down and put them together. So I, you know, they're, they're not just sort of a collection of stuff like some of these are. I mean, I mean, Netflix is just a, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a sort of a Walmart place. I mean, you just go in there, you know, what the hell you're going to see. Mostly, mostly junk and a few gems, right? Seriously. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, I love when they pick. They think one of my favorite movies. I go, I never watch that trash. I know. Do they ever? Do, does that? Does that algorithm ever get it right? Never, never, ever. But it's fun watching them try, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Oh, uh, while we're on Netflix, I have to ask Kathleen. We may have to do another show on this. So, have, have either of you seen uh, Call My Agent? It's based on a French series, and and I, I'm interested in it, but no, I haven't seen it. I, so, yeah. Well, Call My Agent actually is the original one. The new one is 10%. That's the British version. Oh, okay. Um, and we've now watched both. Um, I want to make the argument, and this should send you to send you to it quicker. I want to make an argument that the whole thing is is a labor series. Um, and 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 actually, this brings us this back to sure. your essay. Uh, well, it's, they're both on Netflix. Okay. Um, I started with 10%, which is only two seasons. It's interesting to watch the English version and then go back to the original and compare and contrast. 10%? And what's the other one called? Uh, call My Agent. In French, okay. it's called, I can't say it in French, but it's also 10%, but I'm not okay. going to, I'm going to, after watching a couple of episodes, I feel like I can speak French, but of course I can't. <laughs> All right, I'll check it out. But, but it brings me back to your essay, Kathleen, because, um, in, in your essay, you talk a lot about, you know, all the people involved in making movies, which, you know, other than folks like us who pay a lot of attention to this, you know, people go to the movies, but they don't think about what's behind the movies. And I will say that for all the, the, the knowledge that I have, I never knew shit about agents. I mean, agents were the least, I mean, I'm interested in directors and screenwriters and actors and animators. I mean, all the people who make the films Agents are this occupy this very odd place. Uh, I, 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 I mean, it's almost. I mean, because they feed off of everybody, right? They're, they're, so they're there's there's almost par the IWW would probably call them parasites, right, Kathleen? I mean, you know, right. and that's why that's that's why the show is called Ten Percent because they get their ten percent. And, and they wind up in these really interesting situations because they represent actors and directors. And, you know, so, and those, those interests are not always aligned. In fact, they're quite often uh, at, at, you know, 
against each other. And so they wind up trying to keep everybody happy. So there's a lot of a lot of lying and and you know it's it's, it's a it's a very ripe area to 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 play around in, but uh, especially in the French version, uh, we're just talking with some friends about one episode where uh, the director wants the actress to do a nude scene, and she's like, "Yeah, that wasn't in the script, and I ain't doing it." And you know, but the director on set, and and Elise, you know this. I mean, the director is God, right? I mean, you know, and you're the actor, and you wanna you want to work, but you don't want to do this scene. And, and, it, and it becomes, you know, and then she calls in her agent, which is, and actually, and I don't, Kathleen, I don't know if you know this, but I was trying to figure out because an actress would have a union rep, I would think, like at least in this country, an, act, an actor would have a union rep. What's the difference between a union rep and the agent? Because in, in the series, she calls in her agent who you know, comes in to do, do battle, with the director who is also a client by the way so it gets interesting yeah i'm i'm not sure about that i know that the the, the screen actors guild must play a role in these yeah. kind of disputes yeah um and i wonder if the u.s uh film industry is an anomaly in how unionized it is uh compared to other national uh cinemas I mean, I was assuming the French were even more unionized just because, you know, Europe, Europe tends to be more unionized than, than us, but maybe that's a wrong assumption. Yeah, that's something that's a, that would be great to explore and learn more about. Well, you guys can go, can go watch it and then we'll do a whole other show on that. But anyway. <laughs> well, I, right. I, uh, I have a quick story to add into this and about theater and uh, directing and scenes. Um, I got, um, graduated uh, in advance from my uh, bachelor's of theater program because um, the young women who were cast in a show, there was a guest director, and he wanted them to wear, to be bare-breasted with just a gauze piece of cloth wrapped around their breasts and a little uh, uh, pair of underwear that wouldn't make a squirrel an apron, uh, <laughs> and wade through water that was on a plastic, piece of black plastic, and they were going to just move slowly through this, and they were afraid a, that they were gonna slip and fall, and B, that, you know, why am I showing my breasts? And what's got to do anything with this? I, I can't remember what the play was, it was a classic of some sort. And I said, well, you don't have to do it. You simply can refuse. And they said to a woman, you don't wanna get the reputation of being hard to work with, especially if you're a woman. Because if you get the reputation of being hard to work with, you won't get cast again. Yeah. And I said, so what? This is, this is, this is undergraduate school you know, go for it, sisters. And then I got a call from the office of my uh, advisor who said, you know, Elise, <laughs> you know how we told you you had to start from scratch and do all four years? We've decided you could skip the last two years. <laughs> Don't let the door slam on the way out. Congratulations. <laughs> I swear to you. <laughs> so so it all worked out for you, didn't it? I, well, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> uh, but I heard that from them. I really did. And so I think that, that I'm sure that's true in film as well. That, you know, you can have your age, you know, you win it, but if you get the reputation of being hard to work with, bye-bye. Which reminds me, let's go to Pajama Game. All right. All right. <laughs> I knew this was leading to something. I wasn't sure what. <laughs> I know, let, me, let me just swing for the fences here. <laughs> All right. Go for so it. All right, Kathy, what's your take? Uh, you know, I think this is a, 
a movie that, uh, you know, there's a very small number of people who work in the crossover of labor film mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and kind of, and most people look at these films very negatively. So this film is seen as kind of a middle-class fantasy, middle-brow, you know, the main character is uh, Doris Day. She's a union steward. Um, and she falls in love with her boss, who's the foreman, uh, played by Bonnie Raitt's dad, John Raitt. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love story. It's quite fluffy. It's got some very silly scenes in it. So I think it's been very dismissed by progressives. Mm -hmm. um, but I really like the, one of the last scenes where there, it's a union rally and the song is called Seven and a Half Cents and they want a seven and a half cent raise. And there's a little bit of what if the workers actually took over the factory. One of the lines is, um, you know, I'd buy myself a factory. That's the last thing she would buy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's this long list of things she would buy if she got the raise, like a car and a washing machine. But the last thing is a factory. So there, there is this very subtle, like you really have to pay attention uh, kind of workers taking over uh, the 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 factory uh, element to that movie that's easy to miss. Well, and as long as we're talking about that, you should talk about The Devil and Miss Jones, because I think there's sort of this whole sort of mini genre within, you know, within our laborific films of these sort of class conscious films that you know, they, they take our issues, but, you know, you got to bring it. It's, it's, it's interesting to me how many times it's a love story between the boss and a worker. It's like, what what is going on there? I don't want to get too psychological here, but, you know, is there some guilt? Is there, or is it, or is this just back to your point, you know, uh, as long as it's making money, they don't care. Yeah. I mean, at least you brought this up. Like what, what did, did you see, pajama game as a younger person do you have any connection to the film um yeah i did and i also saw the recent um i had sort of forgotten about it uh, until i saw a recent production at arena stage of the the musical so uh, so it's interesting you know it's 1953 it's the, the it starts off as a novel uh is it seven and a half seven and a half cents that's right that's, that's right. right that's right which I think is just amazing. And there's a new play out called Seven Minutes uh, mm. uh, that, that's been described as 12 Angry Men Meets Collective Bargaining. Uh, and so I, in the, in, the, in the heart of this story is this, is this union shop steward who is doing, doing her job and doing her best with this totally unconscious um, <laughs> uh, disregard for sexual harassment. And, and, and the, the, I mean, the, the, the one, the one character is trying to murder his, his spouse, right? He's, he's an abuser. He's a, he's a stalker. Yeah. And, and, and it does not play well at all. It's crazy. It's like, what were they thinking? It's what I'm trying, trying to figure out. But obviously they felt the thing, oh, it, it went well, you know, we, we can make some money on it. And it's, it's a Doris Day vehicle. So, you know, she'll just, she'll carry it right through. And uh, I, I just remember thinking, wow, because I, you know, I love Doris Day. I mean, I, you know, I thought she was charming and funny and, you know, musical and they had her all, you know, always in the center of things. But the story just never made any sense to me. 
and it made even less sense watching it now. It's like, what? And then musically, I mean, the one, the one big memorable song is Steam Heat, which apparently has nothing to do with nothing. It's like, I can tell. They just stuck story. it in there. No, I remember you, I think you're the one who told me the story that they, they needed, some, you know, they needed something to move it along and that they just stuck that number. I mean, it's a great number, right? Great number. But it makes no, makes no plot sense whatsoever. Yeah, so I mean, the the one thing I can say about that song that that maybe gives us a little bit more like connection to our theme of labor is that the that the songwriters, one of them, um, did write a lot of radical kind of popular front songs, mm-hmm. and uh, it it it. Is kind of a, a work song. Like it's about the, it's about the, I mean, steam, heat, come on, everybody get hot. So it's about getting, it's, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna organize, you're looking for a hot shop, right? Like that's our terminology. So there is kind of a little bit of, of labor radicalism in there. Um, Bob Fosse, who, who choreographed it, was studying under, was kind of the assistant for Jerome Robbins. Jerome mm. Robbins was, uh, was very close to a lot of the radicals in the 30s, but testified, you know, named names because the, the, uh, the, the powers that be said they were gonna out him as gay. Mm. And then Bob Fosse was straight, but worked in that world and um, Bob Fosse tells the story, and you're just not even going to believe this. Buddy Hackett begged him not to join the Communist Party. Oh my God! In the 1940s, Buddy Hackett. Um, they were they were friends, yeah. and Buddy Hackett is like, "Don't do it. You're going to regret it." So everyone who makes this musical is a radical. These are all radicals, but they all are trying to navigate the minefield of the 1950s um, and the blacklist and McCarthyism. So at the same time, not dealing with their sexism at all. I am looking at the original poster for St. James Theater, and it's a a drawing of a woman in a a pajama that stops at her knees, and it's off her shoulders, so you can just Mm. see the top of her breast. This is the drawing, and next to it is a picture drawing of five men looking at her like, ooh. I just thought, hokey smoke. They just didn't get it from day one. No, they got it, and they didn't care. It's soft core porn of the of the of the of the era and it's critical of that i mean it's there is a way in which the the women stand up and get their rights in the film but the but the the story is completely blind to how much this is really about sexual violence against women yeah i i thought i thought the secretary was going to do it I thought she was gonna like finally go get out of here. Just stop this, and they're like, nope. Well, that that does connect well to nine to five mm-hmm. because um, yeah. I was reading an interview last night with the screenwriter of nine to five, and somebody said, "What was it like to be a woman screenwriter in this period?" And she's like, "Well, I don't know what it was like to be a male screenwriter in this period." She said, "But I basically never worked again after this movie." Oh, wow. Even though it was very successful. And she ended up moving to television 
But here's this incredibly popular movie that is about and much more aware of sexism in the workplace, right? Yes. yes. Um, and yes. the original draft was much, um, much grimmer because they were really tr in the original screenplay. They were actually going. They were trying to murder their boss. Right. That's right. <laughs> Oops. And the director took the screenplay, told the writer bye bye, uh -huh. and turned all of those episodes into fantasy. Ah, ooh, which, thank you, Kathleen. Which, which I think actually might have been a good move because I think it works very well as a comedy. Yes, I agree. I think that is part of its success is that it stays okay. it stays light. It stays above the fray. Well, it yes. makes it, it it's and I think maybe uh, at least to your point, you know, because I'm also thinking about the subtext of, of uh, you know, uh, being gay, right, that had to be handled so, so carefully. Um, and it may be that these are that these are ways for for people to deal with these issues. I mean, if you actually and I'm trying to think and, and you guys can help me out, but I, I feel like there are there have been films uh, subsequently. And I have a feeling that the European films, um, you know, and, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm trying to uh, we showed a couple of in the film festival, you know, where there is actual, you know, murder and they're, they're much darker films. They're good films, but they're much tougher films. They're, they are not, you know, these are not films that are going to become hits because there's a, there's a, there's a, I'm, I'm blanking on it, but Kathleen, you know, the film where the, where the guy realizes that his best chance of getting a promotion is go around bumping off his, you know, the other, he figures out who the other people are going for this job. It's a European film. And I, I should, you know, I'll look it up later, but anyway, that's a, it's a great film. I was, I was always interested that they didn't remake it. I thought it would make a, 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 a it would be wonderful as an American remake, but they decided never to remake that. Uh, but it's a very dark film and and they just totally and and you know that's in the book it was based on a book and that's that's there um but you know i think that's very uh uncomfortable if you actually talk about uh bumping off off the off the boss that'll do it for this first part of labor goes to the movies that was kathleen m newman kathy's a professor of english literary and cultural studies at Carnegie Mellon University. We'll be back with the second part of this conversation when Tom Zaniello, who's written a number of books on labor films, joins us to provide his perspective. Thanks for listening. See you next time.